Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about choices and preferences. And I wanted to start off by looking at what I think is one of the most commonly misunderstood poems in English literature. Uh, It's a classic most Americans already know. You probably read it at some point in high school or even earlier. But it's an interesting poem because I think it usually gets interpreted to mean the exact opposite of what it actually means. All right. So this is The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Are you ready to hear it again? Yeah, yeah. This is always a, a pleasure to uh, to hear or to read, even though it's one that I, I think we're all hit with, uh, at least probably at the elementary school level. You know, I, I feel like I came to a greater appreciation of just the, the music of Robert Frost's poems as an adult than I, than I had for them when I was in school. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly what changed there. Maybe I became grumpier and he was quite a grump himself. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but here we go. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for that the passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. It's a beautiful poem. It really is, but one of the things that that is really funny is that I think people usually interpret this poem as a sort of uh, celebration of unique individuality and a celebration of going your own way. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. about how if you go boldly where others have not gone before, if you remain your unique, authentic self and choose the stranger path, you'll be rewarded with a life of unique meaning. But If you read it closely, I think the poem is meant to be a quite ironic sort of parry against exactly that way of thinking, because what happens in it? Well, the speaker comes to a fork in the road. The speaker evaluates the fork, you know, each path for a bit. At first thinks one is more traveled than the other, but then ultimately realizes that they're about the same. Then Mm -hmm. takes one road rather than the other for no major reason. They are in reality pretty much indistinguishable. Then thinks about how later in life he'll be claiming that he took the bold untraveled path and that it changed his life, even though that wasn't true. Yeah, I feel like that's something that a lot of people miss out on in the poem. And I think a lot of it sometimes comes down to um, the discussions about what is he actually talking about? And people get very wrapped up in that. Like, what was the choice? No, 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 not the walk in the woods. What were you actually talking about, Frost? And, and then you, you kind of end up ignoring the mechanics of it that you're talking about here. Well, yeah, because I think this is, in a way, a sort of uh, an image poem that can be applied to many different types of choices one makes in life, though I think it was literally inspired by him walking in the woods in New England. I'm not positive about that, but mm-hmm. I think I've read that before. But yeah, so it's essentially a poem about a person who 
chose at random between two at the time pretty much indistinguishable options and then comes up later with an ex post facto justification for his choice that it was the one made you know made out of daring and authentic principle and that it was deeply meaningful and I really like this ironic interpretation because it, it raises a number of really interesting questions about human nature. So first of all, is, isn't so much of life like this? We do make life-changing decisions without knowing what the outcome will be. The, the, the options in front of us might look indistinguishable at the time. You choose between two job opportunities. You can't really tell that one is necessarily better than the other, but then later you, you will have – had much of your life developed on the basis of whichever choice you made. And you have to come up with a narrative of your life story that, that like makes sense of that choice in light of its later unpredictable significance. And obviously when you do this, a lot of times you're going to end up remembering the choice differently than it was in your mind when you made it. But then it also raises an interesting question about decision-making in the moment. When there are two options that are pretty much the same – we, we often have to form a preference for one or the other. Now, there are plenty of cases where you can quite clearly see why you'd prefer one option over another. But in cases where that's not true, in the absence of the obvious superiority of one option over another, where do our preferences arise from? Why do we decide we like the left path rather than the right path if they look about the same? And for the purpose of today's episode, I want to expand beyond thinking about paths in the woods or big life decisions uh, when it comes to the formation of any preferences, even extremely minor ones. You know, you choose between two basically equivalent brands of blender at the store. Why do we like the things that we like? Why do we have the preferences that we have? I'm probably going to refer back to uh, the Black Mirror um, episode, the Black Mirror movie Bandersnatch, a lot in this one. We, we did an episode about it last year, breaking down, you know, so the nature of choice and free will and all. But like, I instantly think about the early stages of Bandersnatch, where as you do this choose your own adventure media, you have to choose uh, which cereal the main character is going to have for breakfast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ultimately, it doesn't really matter in, in the, the context of that, uh, of that story. Uh, and it's it's more about just teaching you the mechanics of choice within this um, you know computer narrative, but um, but it's interesting that you still have to exert a certain amount of of mental energy to make that choice to decide this serial over that one. And it's interesting how, and this will tie into something we'll talk about in just a minute here. It's interesting how, at least for me. Those early choices are kind of uncomfortable when you have yeah. to pick the cereal or you have to pick the record or something and you don't have a natural strong preference one way or another. You've got this kind of weird anxiety that lingers after your choice. Like, I don't know. Did I pick the right one? <laughs> yeah, because later on, you can definitely make a call like, OK, this is the more dramatic choice or, uh -huh. well, this is the more this is the moral choice. But in choosing the two cereals, aside from maybe health concerns about the sugary cereal versus the other cereal, there's not as much to go on. Right. Uh, so one of the, the main things I want to talk about in this episode today is a really interesting fact that's been observed in a bunch of psychology studies over the years. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to look at the, an early one from the 1950s in just a minute here. We often assume that our preferences are what determine our choices. I pick this option instead of that because I like it better. But there is also significant evidence, here's your anti-metaboly, that our choices determine our preferences. I like this option because I picked it. 
Uh, and one of the big early studies here, a classic study uh, that was in the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology in 1956 by Jack W. Brim, is called Post-Decision Changes in the Desirability of Alternatives. Uh, so, so again, this is by the American psychologist Jack W. Brim. Brim had been a student of the highly influential American social psychologist Leon Festinger, who is probably best known for developing the theory of cognitive dissonance. Now, this is a term you've probably all heard before, but a lot of people don't know the experimental history surrounding it. So the simple version is that cognitive dissonance is the state of holding contradictory beliefs or values or uh, contradictions between your beliefs and your values and your actions, uh, observing these contradictions within yourself simultaneously. So one example that's very often cited is knowing that smoking cigarettes is harmful to your health, but smoking them anyway. Uh, but there, there can be all kinds of cognitive dissonance. Our life is just full of of, of cognitive dissonance. Uh, you know, you believe that your spouse is a good person, but you also know that they did something wrong. You you know that they stole money out of the church collection plate or something. I think one that's probably very common to parents is you love your child, but you really honestly don't like something they did. You know, you hate the way their crayon drawings look or something. <laughs> uh, and and when you're faced with this kind of contradiction, and of course we're faced with these kind of contradictions all the time. Uh, there is a problem that arises. What Festinger argued was that the state of cognitive dissonance is experienced internally as a profound stress, and people will do almost anything to alleviate that stress. And so this, this remedial action to, to alleviate the stress can take many forms, but it's just some finding some way to resolve the contradiction. Really anything that reduces the internal perception of a contradiction between beliefs and values and actions. So if you're going back to the classic example of a person who smokes cigarettes but who is aware of the dangers of tobacco – they have options including they could they could change their actions so you can actually quit smoking but of course that one's really hard so a lot of people would instead go for one of the other options which is change explicit beliefs you can say ah, yeah what do these doctors know you know doctors are wrong about stuff all the time I don't know. Nobody ever really proved that smoking causes cancer. That's, you know, the, the, these studies are, can you really trust these studies and on and on? You, you, can, you can just say, well, no, I don't believe that the risks are real. Uh, or you could change other types of beliefs, such as changing underlying beliefs that are going unspoken, because if there's an internal conflict, if there's cognitive dissonance arising over smoking, it relies on the unspoken premise that you want to live as long and be as healthy as possible. So you could relieve cognitive dissonance by explicitly rejecting that belief. And you've probably heard this before from people who say like, yeah, I smoke. Yeah, it causes cancer. But hey, who wants to live forever? That's also a, you know, a great example of, of short-term versus long-term thinking, right? Exactly. I mean, uh, I, I think there are ways of looking at things like, I mean, on one hand, like, you know, people are free to, to make the decisions about their own health as they choose. But I think there is a legitimate school of thought that would say that uh, making statements like that is basically a lack of compassion for your own future self. Yeah. But statements like that can help resolve the dissonance. Uh, there, there, there are other things people do, too. Uh, people can think of 
compensatory reasons that they would keep smoking. So they might say, okay, I, I accept the fact that smoking is bad for health. I keep doing it, but I've got some like compensatory justification in my brain. Uh, I need to smoke in order to stay focused at work or like I need to smoke in order to stay thin or, or things like that. And so people have argued about how best to interpret cognitive dissonance theory, and, and they've argued around the margins over the years. But it seems to me like cognitive dissonance is, is pretty robust and a very lasting concept uh, from, from social psychology that explains a lot of our behaviors and cognitive processes. Uh, there have been a ton of different experiments that seem to support the idea of cognitive dissonance reduction as a major pressure driving our beliefs and behaviors. Uh, just one I was reading about is a study by Festinger and Carl Smith from 1959 uh, that worked something like this. So you have people perform something that they believe to be the actual bulk of the experiment. It's this like long, repetitive, extremely boring task. I don't remember exactly what it is. It's like, you know, you put these pegs in holes for an hour or something. Mm -hmm. It's mind-numbingly boring. And then you pay the subjects after they're done with the experiment to tell the people who are going in to do it next that it's really fun and interesting. <laughs> uh, so they're going to be lying. They're going to be openly saying something that they know not to be true. And Festinger and Carl Smith found something interesting, which is that if you pay people a larger sum of money to tell this lie, they will, they will afterwards acknowledge it as a lie. So, you know, you give me a hundred bucks or whatever. I think it was $20 in the study, but that was 1950s money. You give me a hundred bucks or something. I say like, yeah, you know, I, I, I lied to the next guy. I told him it was going to be really fun. If you pay somebody a pittance sum to tell the lie, you give them just a dollar, they are more likely afterwards to report believing that what they said was true. So you give somebody $100 to say this is really – putting the pegs in the holes is really fun. They say, yeah, I was lying, but hey, I got a payday. You pay people a dollar to say it, and they say, actually, putting the pegs in the holes was pretty fun. <laughs> And the reasoning here is that in the absence of a large sum of money to internally justify the lie in order to you know, basically relieve the cognitive dissonance, give you a reason in your mind for having said it, the easiest way for people to reduce cognitive dissonance is to change their beliefs, change what they believe about what they were doing so that what they were saying actually wasn't a lie. It was true. Yeah. But yeah. The pegs in the holes. It's great. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, I agree with what you said, said earlier. I, I think this helps to explain a lot of what goes on in our heads, cognitive dissonance, both specifically as it applies to contradictory opinions and beliefs that, that we, we hold at once in our minds, as well as just more broadly getting at the lack of a congruent self, you know? Yeah, because, I mean, human life, you're, you're just going to be full of contradictions. I mean, there, there is no way a human can be consistent all the time. Uh, you're, you're going to have pressures that are acting on your mind and going in multiple directions and and most of the time, these contradictions can exist within you without you really being aware of them. But once you become aware of them, I am pretty convinced that, yeah, it does manifest as this type of stress that you've got to do something about. Yeah. Yeah. Like it, you, we often see people using sort of like self-defining mantras, you know, like uh, I am uh, this first, this second, this third, or, you know, uh, I am this and this and this. Or, you know, you define yourself in your your profile um, on social media as being as being this or that or the other. But, you know, ultimately, if we're, we're being honest, it, it, a lot of times it depends on 
on what time of day it is when yeah. we last had uh, a little boost of sugar or caffeine, you know, how tired we are, um, how much sunlight we've been exposed to during the day, that sort of thing, how much exercise we've had. Uh, those are some, just some of the factors that can influence the ranking of those little uh, uh, those little phrases that we use to define ourselves, and 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 even incorporating different phrases that we might not uh, we might not have on the list uh, normally, or certainly when we're you know outward facing and dealing with other people. Yeah, a, a lot of our, a lot of our lives are concerned with trying to create a consistent narrative about ourselves, and in fact, ourselves are just not that consistent. Yeah. And, and really, I mean, neither is our understanding of the past or our memory of the past yeah. or, or anything. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's just it's it's so ridiculous the more you unravel it. Like we, we're so obsessed with our, our personal narratives and where we fit into it when in reality there is no past. You know, we are we are creatures of the present uh, traveling into the future. And, uh, and, and yet we end up, you know, spending all this time uh, fretting about Things that are essentially fiction, because all we have is just this uh, this cobbled together false memory of what we were. Uh, this ties back to previous episodes that we've done on the phenomenon of fundamental attribution error, the tendency for people to overestimate the role of like internal agency and character, and underestimate the role of just external situations and forces in guiding what human behavior is. It turns yeah. out people are more malleable and more changeable based on situations than we normally like to think. We like to think yeah. in terms of like, you know, consistent, solid psychological storytelling where Jon Snow always stands for right and he just always does what is perfectly consistent with his character and it's, it's explained by who he is. But in fact, what we do a lot of times is just explained by what's going on around us. Yeah. But anyway, uh, to come back to the, the cognitive dissonance question, one implication of cognitive dissonance is that in fact, our beliefs are quite malleable. You know, when beliefs are dissonant with one another, it looks like you know it's people don't want to think this about themselves, but it seems to be true. We quite often and quite readily just change one of our beliefs. We just believe something different to get them in line. So anyway, this study by Jack Brem looked at the question of whether cognitive dissonance might be a motivator even when people are evaluating their own preferences, their own personal desires, just likes and dislikes, even uh, with regards to very minor things like, do, do you like this appliance or not? How much do you like it? So the basics of the study, uh, you, you present people with a selection of different household items and appliances ranging in retail value for from uh, $15 to $30, but that was at the time, 1950s dollars. Um, and then you ask the people to rate each of these items in terms of desirability. How much would you would you like to own this item on a scale of 1 to 10 from extremely desirable to definitely not desirable at all? Or sorry, I, I think I said one to ten. It's one to eight. Um, so you know, you really want the eights. You don't really care about the ones. Uh, and the the items included things like an automatic coffee maker, an electric sandwich grill, a silk screen reproduction, an automatic toaster, a fluorescent desk lamp, a book of art reproductions, a stopwatch, and a portable radio. So if I'm a subject in this experiment, I go down the list, I, I do my ratings. I might rate the stopwatch at a 3 out of 10. I don't really care about that much. Maybe the sandwich grill at a 5, the coffee maker at a 6, etc. And then after I'm finished with my ratings and they're taken away, 
the experimenter tells me that as part of my payment for participating, I'll get to take home my choice of one of two items from the list, but the experimenter picks what the two are. So maybe he tells me that I can take home either the toaster or the coffee maker, which I rated equally, giving both a six, but I have to pick one. So I pick the coffee maker and I reject the toaster. Then some other conditions take place. Uh, the, the, there were various other control conditions, but the, the experiment ends at some point with me re-rating the original objects again for desirability uh, without being able to refer to the ratings I had already made. And what the researchers found was, on average, if I was forced to pick between two objects, my desirability rating for the object I picked would go up. And my rating for the object I rejected would go down. So maybe I initially rated the toaster and the coffee maker both as a six. But then if I'm forced to pick between them and I pick the coffee maker, afterwards I might rate the coffee maker as a seven and the toaster as a four or something like that. Now, why would that be? Yeah, this is interesting because uh, one of one of the possible examples that came to mind when I was thinking about this was to go back to a previous episode that, that we recorded, thinking about how, you know, back when, when I was younger, you had you had like maybe 20 bucks to blow on a CD uh, during mm -hmm. the course of a month, and you, you made your pick, you bought it, and then even if it wasn't that great, you kind of found a reason to like that album as you listen to it over and over again. You found at least yep. one song. But in those cases you have sunk cost in the situation. Like, I spent right. money on it um, in addition to time. Whereas in this scenario, uh, it, it's, they're, they're, money is not the issue. There's like, I guess there's sort of a sunk cost in time, but we don't have that, uh, that financial um, aspect of the scenario. Right. So the sunk cost fallacy does seem to be real. Like, we make choice-supportive biased judgments in favor of stuff that we've already invested time and money and all that into. But here it's just like, well, you're going to get one or the other. Which one do you want? And it seems mm -hmm. like once you pick one out of the two, the one you didn't pick looks like junk. And the one you did <laughs> pick, oh, that's pretty great. I do find this, I think, you know, this is just you know me thinking back on, on past experiences, but I feel like this with ice cream sometimes. Like, yeah. ultimately... Most of the ice creams at the nice ice cream place, you know, they're going to be great. I'm going to mm -hmm. enjoy them. They're just going to be varying degrees of sweetness and, uh, you know, and complex flavor, I guess. But I'll often find myself thinking like, you know, afterwards, if I'm there with my family, we'll all, you know, sample each other's ice creams. And I'll generally go, yep, I made the right choice. This is yeah. the ice cream for me. Yep. Now, there could be multiple reasons for that. One reason is extremely straightforward. One reason is you, you just picked the one you actually wanted most. You know what yeah. your preferences are and you acted them out. But there could be good at this. Yeah, there could be other things at work, too. And so the underlying explanation based on cognitive dissonance for what was observed in the study, it, it goes something like this. When you evaluate how much you want two potential possessions, you think in a general way about the pros and cons of each. What do you like about them? What do you dislike about them? Then if you are forced to choose between two options for which you see roughly similar amounts of pros and cons, it creates one of these mildly stressful states of cognitive dissonance. And again, that sounds funny because like how could that be stressful? But it looks like this just does manifest as stress in our brains even though it doesn't really make a lot of sense that it would. Mm -hmm. So you didn't choose the toaster even though there are things that you like about the toaster, etc. 
And this uncomfortable state of cognitive dissonance has a name, actually, when it's applied to expensive purchases. When you've spent money on it, it's known as buyer's remorse, right? Okay, I need to buy a lawnmower, but you know what the hell do I know about lawnmowers? I can't tell one from the other. They cost a lot of money, but I need one, and I can't really tell them apart. So I'm just going to have to pick one of these here at the store and buy it so I can cut the grass. Uh, but after you've made a purchase like this, okay, big dollar item, you've spent a lot on it, you you just picked one, people often experience a sinking feeling, this form of stress and psychological discomfort. Did I buy the right one? And you think about what might have been good about the ones you didn't buy, and you think about what might be wrong with the one you did buy. So to eliminate the stress of this dissonance, the theory goes that your brain simply changes your beliefs. You change your beliefs about what you prefer and what you want, emphasizing the pros and de-emphasizing the cons of the option you chose and vice versa for the option you rejected. And it makes sense in a weird way, right? I mean, we often think of that our beliefs should be these these core and just fixed things about ourselves, you know, uh, the, the, you know, all the, the wind and the raging of the world just move around. But, uh, you know, from from the mind standpoint, it's like, well, uh, this is causing a problem. Let's let's change this circuit here because we're getting some some feedback uh, that, that is not optimal for the system. Right. Um, now, I will note that, of course, as always, these these results apply on average. And it's interesting to think about other ways that some people might reduce cognitive dissonance in this kind of situation without changing their original preferences, uh, without changing their opinions about what's desirable. I think one very common adaptive strategy is the adaptive strategy of internally de-emphasizing the importance of possessions, which in fact, in reality, which, you know, moment to moment reduces the cognitive dissonance that arises from making choices about possessions. Yeah, sort of realizing, well, lawnmowers don't really matter. Um, right. It doesn't, it's just the thing. And I'm going to spend a certain amount on it. It's just, I'm going to spend what it costs. I'm going to get whichever one is just easiest to obtain. In the smoking example, I think this is kind of the op- this is equivalent to the like who wants to live forever option, but thinking yeah. about <laughs> you know consumer items instead of your life. <laughs> like I'm not reckless with my health; I'm just very zen about this whole smoking thing. Right. I think it makes more sense to try to do the the zen path about the lawnmower. Yes, yeah, um, about material possessions. But hey, I mean that's hard. I mean you, we shouldn't just like blithely say yeah everybody should do that. I mean it's difficult to do that. People, you're spending your money. That is your labor. You're you're thinking, oh god, did I did I get it right? Um, and and the same even manifests when you're just making a decision about what appliance you want to take home after spending an afternoon doing an experiment. Um, mm-hmm. And and I should also note that there have been some competing explanations for this phenomenon, but it seems like cognitive dissonance is favored by the experts and supported by a lot of other experiments. Um, so I wanted to note in this experiment, there were a couple of interesting control conditions and additional hypotheses tested that ended up not receiving support from the data. So I'm not going to get into those, but I did want to mention one control condition, the gift condition, and this provides an interesting variation on what they found. So There is some indication that owning something makes people see that thing as more desirable. So what if it was the effect of ownership of this appliance they received that made the difference rather than reduction of cognitive dissonance arising from your choices? Well, to control for that in this gift condition, the subject did not get to choose which item they would receive. It was just picked for them and given as a gift by by the experimenter. 
And uh, what Brim found is that this control condition did not produce effects to challenge the main finding. So it really did look like, at least from this experiment, that people's ratings were actually changed by the choices they made and not just by feelings associated with ownership or feelings from what you're taking home. It wasn't the fact that you have the coffee maker that makes it seem better. It was the fact that you chose it. You know, one this is this is, gets more complicated, and perhaps it's, it's looked at more in uh, the appropriate literature uh, surrounding it. But I'm instantly reminded of some of the uh, advertising mechanics that I've encountered recently on YouTube, where I'm watching a show uh, that that I that we regularly watch, and then I'll instead of just being served an ad, I get served a little choice that says, mm-hmm. "Which of the following ads would you like to receive most?" I wonder <laughs> if that is a mechanic that's playing into uh, some of this. Oh, yeah. So like if you choose it, maybe the idea is you'll actually be uh, less resentful of the ad and more likely to pay attention to it and listen all the way through. Yeah. I wonder. Yeah, maybe. Because I noticed the choice is never like um, it's never a wonderful, like an easy choice. It's not like, do you want to see an ad for the new Star Wars TV show or do you want to watch um, an insurance commercial? No, it's always like, which insurance commercial would you like to watch? <laughs> well, it's got to be the one with that really nice lady. What, the, what is the that nice one? lady? Oh, There's one no. with a really nice lady who's always really nice. Oh yeah, I guess I like the weird ones. Give me the give me the the real the surrealist. Uh, yeah, the gecko ones. Uh, the CGI yeah. gecko. Yeah, make me not realize it was for insurance and and never think twice about what the product actually was. <laughs> um, okay, so just to read the the top line from the conclusion of Brim's study: "Quote the results supported the prediction that choosing between alternatives would create dissonance and attempts to reduce it by making the chosen alternative more desirable and the unchosen alternative less desirable." Yeah, this reminds me of another paper, uh, Joe, that I think you're familiar with: uh, "Love the One You're With" uh, by <laughs> Stephen Stills et al. <laughs> yep. When you know when you're down and when you're confused. And you don't remember uh, how you rated the items originally. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, uh, more seriously, though, uh, I'm not sure if this completely sticks, but I I instantly, looking over all this, I started thinking about the the, the still relevant divide over gaming systems. Hmm. So back when I was a kid, like the first major choice I think I I had to make, uh, because I was an NES kid, and then came the, the choice Super NES or Sega Genesis. Uh, and then eventually later comes the PlayStation-Xbox divide, and I think that's, that's still very much uh, alive today. But, but basically, you know, one often has to make a choice which pricey system they're going to invest in. And this also impacts certain console exclusives, right? Like if you're a Nintendoite, then you're going to get Mario, and so you're going to end up on Team Mario. If you're a, a Sagatarian, then you're going you're gonna to be a follower <laughs> of Saint Sonic the Hedgehog, and May, you know, maybe Saint Altered Beast. Uh, Xbox, you're going to get Gears of War and Halo. PlayStation, you're going to get uh, Gods of War and uh, or God of War, whatever it was, and The Last of Us. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, on, on one level, on like a very rational level, you engage with in, in some decision making. You're like, well, uh, I know this franchise is a console exclusive. I'm going to go this direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in other cases, I, I, I do, looking back, I do find myself having engaged in some of that. You know, like, I didn't really have a huge opinion on the whole Mario-Sonic divide, and yet I found at times someone like today will bring up um, Mario and Sonic and be like, oh, well, you know, Mario was cool, but Sonic was a bit lame. Sonic was a bit, a bit of a, po- a poochie. And on, 
I realistically have to agree with them, but I have this impulse to defend Sonic because I was a Sega player, because I Ooh. had the Sega Genesis. And even though I didn't really love Sonic the Hedgehog, like he was still, I was still on that team, you know? Sorry, I'm still reeling from Sonic being a poochie, which I think is highly accurate. I'm sorry. <laughs> it is. No, I, I agree. I rationally agree with you. But I have this irrational response, this knee-jerk reaction to defend him for some reason, even mm. though I, I never completed a Sonic game and ultimately don't have a, a real strong opinion on Sonic versus Mario. I, didn't, I, I played both of them at some point or another, but, and I didn't particularly, you know, I don't really rationally love one more than the other. Yeah, I mean, I think ideas like uh, which video game console you buy that that goes in the same direction as a lot of these sort of like consumer options that people choose between where I think clearly like both kinds of considerations are going to be feeding in like there are some just genuine preference differences like you can look at mm. like which games you can get on each one and have a genuine desire to play one more than the other but then there's also probably some choice supportive bias kicking in and how you retrospectively think about making the choice and which one you'd like better yeah and, and I guess I should say that a, a less favored but also possibly viable explanation for for this phenomenon, um, like observed in Brim's study, is known as self-perception theory. Basically, this is an alternative to cognitive dissonance theory that comes down to the principle that uh, pe people form their internal perceptions of the self by observing external actions. So how, how do you decide what your preferences are? Well, you actually decide them by observing what you choose. And so if this were the correct interpretation, this would also explain choice-induced preference change, which is what the phenomenon would come to be known as choice-induced preference change. You make the choice, and that changes retrospectively what you think your preferences are. And Brim's results have been replicated many times across many studies. Uh, there, are, there are some disagreements, but it appears to me to be a, a pretty solid conclusion that not only do our preferences influence our choices, but our choices really do influence our preferences. And this probably happens in both positive and negative directions. So again, just like in that first study – uh, our preferences for options that we choose increase and our preferences for options that we reject decrease. And I think the second condition is especially interesting. It explains something that I've often observed anecdotally that so many things in life are once discarded, despised. Almost mm -hmm. a, as soon as you have committed to rejecting an option – you can suddenly think of all kinds of reasons why that option was bad anyway. The cons just boil up into your brain. Yeah, this is interesting. Um, I thought about this in terms of video games, but then I, I think I thought of a, an even better example, and that is um, uh, the music of Metallica. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I, I always try to be a polite person about things that I like and what uh, things other people like. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if at any point someone was to come up to me and be like, hey, I'm really excited about Metallica or, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this old Metallica album or I'm trying out this new Metallica album, I would probably be like, oh, yeah, yeah, Metallica's cool. Uh, but if, I, if, I'm being, if I'm being honest, like there was, there was a time in my life where I was super into Metallica. I was like, you know, mm -hmm. discovering those, uh, those albums for the first time, you know, uh, you know, or, you know, ride the lightning and so forth. Yeah, um, me Justice too. For, for me, eight, eighth, ninth grade for me, that was like Metallica yeah. city. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was, uh, I think I was, I was maybe just starting college or maybe I was finishing high school when I really started getting into them, but it was like, you know, everything from the black album, uh, prior, I was like, this is amazing. And, um, 
and then at some point I was like, I, I basically I less I I stopped listening to them for a very long time, and then more recently I've started listening to them again. And, and that's like the realistic read on it. But on some level, I do feel like when I discarded Metallica, I was like, yeah, Metallica kind of sucks. Like, those guys are jerks. Uh, their newer stuff's not any good. You know, mm-hmm. all these various things you kind of heap onto the pile, which is ridiculous because, A, I used to really like them. And then I would have to, like, me, current me would have to point out to then me, you're going to like them again. There's going to be a come a time in 2020 where you suddenly start streaming a bunch of old Metallica albums again. And, um, and, and it's not going to make sense with this current rejection of, of them as a, as, a, as, a, as a musical entity. This is really funny because just this week I started listening to their first two albums again. <laughs> oh, cool. I wonder why that happened. Is there something in common that did this come up in a previous talk we had? I- I don't think we've really talked about Metallica recently. Uh, I mean, Just, it comes up time to time. but uh, Metal serendipity. I, I find yeah. very interesting that I love the stupid ideology of their early albums, which there, there is presumed to be some kind of great conflict over the concept of metal. And uh, mm-hmm. one of the things that's great about early early albums within a genre is that they're often very much about the genre so like you know like early rock music is all about what rocking is and instructing you to rock uh there are like early rap songs that are about rapping and about and telling people how to rap there are early metal albums that are very much all about metal and metallica's early albums are are all about the concept of metal and what it means to fight in the metal wars i love this yeah I, i i'm a a big, uh, I really love house music as well. And of course, there's so many different types of house music to listen to. But I, I still have a very warm uh, place for house music that informs you that this is house music. We have a voice <laughs> telling you, you are listening to house music. And I'm like, that's great. I don't get enough music that is very explicit about the genre that I'm listening to. That's excellent. I wonder what age a, a genre mostly stops being about the concept of itself as a genre. Is like metal today isn't usually very much about the concept of metal like early thrash yeah. metal was. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it just evolves to a certain certain point. Um, now, of course, in all of this, you know, not to get too far off the point here, I think also you have that kind of like uh, ebb and flow of nostalgia, right? So the thing right. you're into, then you get out of, and then you can reach a point where you look back on it fondly mm-hmm. and get back into it at least to some degree. Uh, but it's funny because I, I went through a cycle that exactly mirrors yours. Like I liked them when I was younger. And then after once I stopped listening to them, it wasn't a deliberate choice. I just kind of moved on to other things. And then I look back on music that I used to listen to and don't listen to anymore and often feel this uh, this this kind of sting, this thing like, OK, I, I mean, I guess what's probably very much going on is I don't listen to it. I'm supporting that choice to not listen to it by changing my beliefs about it and deciding that it's dumb anyway. Yeah. Uh, Now, following up from Brem's original study in the 50s, like I said, there have been a bunch of replications, but uh, there have also been some interesting questions. Like uh, one study I was looking at investigated something about the methodology of the test. Uh, So it was it was trying to see if the results stand up to challenges to Brem's original uh, method. And the paper I was looking at here was by Tally Chiro, Christina M. Velazquez and Raymond J. Dolan, published in Psychological Science in 2010. 
called Do Decisions Shape Preference? Evidence from Blind Choice. Uh, now, this was pretty interesting. So the authors here begin by noting some papers. Uh, all the ones I saw were, were associated with a researcher named M.K. Chen that noticed a potential problem with Brem's method such that it could be telling us something different than what we think it does. And the critique goes like this in, uh, in the author's uh, Shiro et al.'s words here, quote, People's preferences cannot be measured perfectly and are subject to rating noise. Okay, true. As participants gain experience with the rating scale, they will provide more accurate ratings such that post-choice shifts in ratings simply reflect the unmasking of the participants' initial preferences, which can be predicted by their choices rather than reflecting any changes in preference induced by the choice. Uh, so does that make sense? Basically, I, th I think mm -hmm. what they're saying is that maybe when people change their desirability ratings of two things that are initially similar after being forced to pick one or the other, what's happening is not an ex post facto reevaluation of their preferences, but people are just getting better with successive tries at expressing their genuine pre-existing preferences on the rating scale used in the experiment. Seems like a reasonable critique that, that would be worth looking into. Yeah, yeah, and I think we can all see examples of that or find examples of that where you're just like, well, I was trying out this one musical genre, and it turns out that just wasn't my thing. Or, like, I think back on video games, and I'm like, yeah, I, I eventually realized I, I'm just not good at real-time strategy games. I just don't like them as much. <laughs> they don't – it's just not my deal. Right, so it would be that the actual preferences – in the beginning were what was revealed in the second rating and you're just getting better at expressing them rather than changing mm -hmm. them. Uh, so the authors of this 2010 study tried to design an experiment that couldn't be subject to that problem. And what they came up with was what they called a blind choice model as opposed to a free choice model. So what's the difference? Well, in a free choice model, again, remember you, you would rate a number of options according to your preference. Then you'd be forced to choose between some subset of them. Then later you rate the options again. In this study, what was different was that people didn't know what two options from the list they were choosing between until they had made their choice. So you're given a hypothetical list of vacation destinations and you rate them in terms of how much you'd like to go there for a vacation. So, you know, Rome, Cairo, etc. Then after the initial rating task, you are asked to choose blindly between a binary subset for a hypothetical vacation, but you can't see what they are. It's you have option A and option B, but the actual locations are hidden and you choose one. Once you choose between them, the options are then revealed. So it's like, oh, so it seems you've picked Macon instead of Tuscany or whatever. Uh, and, and then once it's all over, you will be asked to rate the options again. So, so does that make sense? You can't see what the options are. You're just making a choice without any information at all. Just complete blind choice. And they also included a couple of control conditions where a computer made the decision for people. So you don't get to make a choice at all uh, to see if the perception of personal agency was important, even though the choice was made blind. And so it's so not just a case of like picking a door and then what's behind door number three, because at least in that scenario, you picked three. But right. in this, there's like a robot game show host that has you walk up and then it just says you're getting a toaster. Right. You get what's behind door number three. Uh, that, that's yeah. the difference there. And so what did the study find? Quote, 
We found that preferences were altered after participants made a blind choice, but not when a computer instructed the participant's decision. The results suggest that just as preferences form choices, choices shape preferences. So this is confirming, Mm. uh, to some degree, Brem's original results. It looks like, yes, these studies have not merely been tracking how people get better at assigning ratings to their pre-existing preferences – What people want and prefer really does seem to change so that it falls in line with what they have already chosen. And this study also reveals this very interesting wrinkle. Choice-induced preference change can happen even when we are not making an informed choice, but just choosing randomly between two options that are temporarily hidden, which is, which is very interesting. So there's some part of us that, again, if the, if the cognitive dissonance interpretation of this phenomenon is correct, there's some part of us that feels a kind of agency that needs to be accounted for in what you chose, even if you didn't know what you were choosing, even if you're just choosing, you know, hats and you can't see what's inside them or, or yeah, door number three, you still feel like I picked that and I need to justify that decision internally. Huh? Yeah, that, that is, that is interesting. I, I'm surprised we, we don't see more of this utilized in online advertising, you know, like maybe there's a version of that YouTube scenario I was describing earlier, where instead of giving you a choice of specific ads, it says, what do you want, ad number one or ad number two? And maybe it's a a completely (laughs) false choice. You know, you're always going to get the same ad, but they are going to give you the provide this illusion that you had to say. Well, this is interesting because when people do not have the illusion that they have a say, then apparently the effect does not hold because, again, think back to the computer condition. Uh, at least in this study, choice-induced preference change only seems to apply if you think it's really you making the choice, not if some someone or something else chooses for you. And this mirrors what Brim found in the gift condition. If you're given three options and then the computer says, okay, of these three options, you get number three, it, it doesn't ha- – you don't change your evaluations afterwards. Hmm. Now, to come back to the uh, Black Mirror Bandersnatch episode, uh, which, again, is a a choose-your-own-adventure type episode where you make choices when you watch it in Netflix. Um, I remember when I rewatched it last year for our episode, I ended up being really pleased with the way it came together based on my choices. Uh, But it was because – but was it because I actually hit on a good combo of narrative branches in this choose-your-own-adventure world? Or, or was it this, you know, because to a certain extent, there are aspects of, of, uh, of, of all this in, in the blind test. You know, you don't necessarily know how the choices you make will impact the overall shape of the narrative by the time you're done with it. That's a really good comparison. I mean, I, I, I feel – well, I mean, thinking about how I interacted with Bandersnatch or with Choose Your Own Adventure books when I was a kid – It's funny how we feel some amount of angst and personal accountability, or at least I did, for how the Bandersnatch or the Choose Your Own Adventure choices turn out, even though there's usually no way you could have predicted the ways that they will actually play out in narrative. Merely Mm -hmm. the suggestion that you're in control seems to be enough to conjure the shadow of personal agency over the direction of the narrative – And thus, I think, enough to bring in the feeling of cognitive dissonance when you choose a path that goes somewhere you don't like or that feels bad or increases the tension. Yeah. 
Uh, so there's another study, an, an older study that I wanted to mention briefly, and this one is from the year 2010 that looks at choice-induced preference change in children and non-human animals. And I thought that this was very interesting because this seems to get to – because you could wonder like, okay, so it seems like this choice-induced preference change thing it really does go on but is this a function of like uh like adult cognition you know adult pictures of the self or would this happen at a more primal level that you would see even in you know uh even in four-year-old children and in monkeys and stuff and it and it looks like the answer is basically yes you do see this even in four-year-old children and capuchin monkeys now you might wonder how you could uh, how you could create the test conditions there because you can't like ask them to to like rate a list of appliances or something, right? Um, so the study design here for for human children is kind of complicated to explain, but once I read it, I thought it was actually very elegant and ingenious. So if you don't mind, I just want to read their description of their experimental setup here. Oh, and sorry, I don't think I said that this. Uh, this paper is by uh, Louisa C. Egan, Paul Bloom, and Laurie R. Santos in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology in 2010. Um, so to read from the, their uh, their methodology with uh, the the test condition involving human children, quote. The experimenter first displayed an opaque gray stocking to the child and sequentially extracted three toys described as some of the experimenter's favorite things, which were really fun, but you have to be creative with them. The toys distended the stocking such that the contours of each could be seen, but the color could not be discerned. The experimenter extracted and displayed the three toys to the child, described them as some of her favorite things, then shuffled them as she lifted them behind an occluder and announced that she would hide the toys. She removed the occluder to display two stockings, one dotted and one argyle. The experimenter pointed out that the outlines of two toys were visible within one of the stockings, and that the outline of the third toy was visible in the second stocking. In the choice condition, the experimenter held up the stocking with two toys and asked the child to reach in without peeking and choose a toy. In the no-choice condition, the experimenter reached into the stocking with two toys, pulled one closer to the mouth of the stocking, held up the stocking, and asked the child to remove the toy on top, again without peeking. In phase two, a second experimenter, blind to which stocking originally contained two toys, indicated the two stockings and asked the child to choose a toy to play with. Children were instructed not to peek before making their selection. So what were the results here? Well, in the choice condition, children strongly preferred the toy in the second stocking, meaning the toy that they had not had a chance to reject from the first stocking. Uh, and and they preferred 66.7% uh, of children in the choice condition went for the new toy in the second stocking instead of the one that they hadn't grabbed from the, from the first stocking. But in the no-choice condition, remember this is the one where the experimenter picks for the kid, the kid doesn't get to pick themselves, the effect vanished. In fact, in the condition where the toy was chosen for them, kids did the opposite, with the majority wanting to reach into the first stocking again and get the other toy. <laughs> and remember, this is despite them fishing the toys out at random. 
and uh, there was also a similar test on capuchin monkeys. I'm not going to go into as much detail on that one. It involves Skittles instead of toys, and it found the same thing. When monkeys were tricked into believing that they had a choice between two initial candies, and then they were given the option to choose between the previously rejected candy of the first two and a new third alternative, they overwhelmingly preferred the new alternative instead of the one that they had not chosen in the previous choice. So again, it looks kind of like once discarded, now despised. (laughs) But as with human children, this was only true if the monkeys were made to think they had a free choice between the first two. If the choice was clearly made for them and they didn't get to pick, they no longer seemed to devalue the other option from the first pair of candies. Uh, That's very interesting to me. And it's interesting that if this manifests in children and monkeys, it seems like choice induced preference change obviously doesn't depend on any sort of like adult sense of self image or sophisticated logic, logical reasoning based on this study. If, if this holds up, it appears that our choices may influence our preferences at a fairly primal level. And uh, I want to read from a section that uh, from their conclusion that picks up on one of the things I noted about the, the, the children's uh, no choice condition. So quote, Curiously, we observed a marginally significant effect in which children in the no-choice condition – remember, that that's the one where they didn't get to pick. The experimenter picked for them out of the first stocking. They preferred the toy that the experimenter did not give them. Although we had originally hypothesized that children would be at chance on this condition, the observed pattern of performance hints that children's preferences may change not merely because of their choices, but also because of their lack of choices. Consistent with Brim's 1966 reactance theory and Brim and Weintraub's research on reactants in two-year-olds, children's preferences may reflect psychological reactance when choice freedom is denied. So... And the possibility uh, here is that the effect is not only not present when you perceive somebody else is denying you a free choice, there could be a reverse effect. Uh, once one of two options is denied you by an outside force, the denied option is not only not despised, it's coveted. You want that thing that you were told you couldn't have. Yeah, I imagine we can, a lot of us can imagine, uh, remember um, childhood examples of this, you know, like the the, yeah. the the toy you were not permitted to have the um the the book that was uh, denied to you that sort of thing yeah uh, now now of course there are always going to be reasons for this that make it make sense in your brain like there are intrinsic qualities to that toy or that book or something that seem like that's why I really want it but it seems like even among toys that are identical <laughs> there yeah. there is this preference that arises from uh, it seems like if we have had the option to pick something and we didn't pick it afterwards, it's it becomes far less interesting to us. We don't really want it at all. But if we were presented with something as a possible option and we're not given the opportunity to get it, then we really want it. So anyway, I, I was looking around for some challenges to the uh, to the uh, choice-induced preference change phenomenon, and I was trying to find if there are any studies that found the opposite. Uh, there are a few. Uh, for example, I found this paper which criticizes the interpretation of Brim's original findings and the replications, um, and it attempts a modified replication of its own. So this was by Steiner Holden, published in 2013 in the Journal of Applied Social Psychology, Do Choices Affect Preferences, Some Doubts, and New Evidence. 
And the author here says, uh, quote, I find no evidence of choice-induced changes in preferences after a choice between items where one was viewed as more attractive than the other, but potentially some weak evidence of changes in preferences after a choice between items viewed as equally attractive. So that's worth keeping in mind. There are some challenges to this uh, phenomenon and, and its robustness, though this does appear to be a minority finding. And in fact, it, it doesn't fully contradict the other results. It only partially contradicts them. But then finally, I wanted to get to one last study I was reading. This was actually the one I was reading about that made me want to do this episode in the first place. It's a very recent study on choice-induced preference change, this time in human babies, in, in pre-verbal human infants, published just this year. So this is by Alex M. Silver, Amy E. Stahl, Rita Loyotil, uh, Alexis S. Smith-Flores, and Lisa Feigenson. Uh, when Not Choosing Leads to Not Liking, Choice-Induced Preference in Infancy, published in Psychological Science this year. Uh, some of the authors were affiliated with Johns Hopkins University, the University of Pittsburgh, and the College of New Jersey. And again, they, they tested for choice-induced preference change in preverbal infants across seven studies with a methodology that's uh, somewhat similar to one of the ones we looked at earlier, with, uh, the ones uh, testing with four-year-olds and capuchin monkeys. And uh, from, from their conclusion and discussion, they say, quote, our findings suggest that choice-induced preference change does not require extensive experience making choices, nor does it rely on advanced metacognitive ability or a developed sense of self because they found this in pre-verbal infants. If pre-verbal infants are changing their, their preferences based on what they've chosen, it seems like it, it really would not require any of those things. It's happening at some lower level in the brain. And it also raises interesting questions about how preferences get formed very early in life, if they might stem from choices made at random in some sense when you're a baby. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like They say, quote, our findings add to our understanding of the role of choice in infancy, showing that infants use their own choices to shape their preferences. This work raises the question of whether other aspects of the psychology of decision making also have their roots in very early life. So yeah, that does make me wonder if like there are things that adults are still carrying, trying to keep a consistent narrative about their preferences, their likes and dislikes that may have their roots, may have emerged at some point when they made some basically random decision as a pre-verbal infant. Isn't that weird? That is weird, yeah. Yeah, it's like you don't want to dwell on the past and think that you know choices in your past define you, but what if those are baby choices? What if it all comes right. down to baby choices, right? What if things that you think of as fundamental to your, you know, your own idiosyncrasies, your, your your view of yourself are rooted in you just trying to stay consistent with something that happened when you were two? Yeah. <laughs> or one even. I mean, <laughs> you know, I picked I picked the the yellow block instead of the red block and and ever since then yellow has been my preferred color. <laughs> Interesting. Um, I, I had a, I had a scenario in my head. I'm not, I, I don't think this one necessarily applies 100%, but perhaps you have a, you have an opinion on it based on what we've discussed so far uh, mm -hmm. in the movie, a Christmas story. Okay. Uh, the old man receives a major award, which of course turns out to be a lamp that looks like a woman's leg. <laughs> um, how would you, um, interpret his attachment to the major award? 
Well, clearly he he is suffering from a kind of preference bias about the major award that's like a a, uh, a self-flattering bias of some kind. I'm not sure best how to categorize it. I don't think it would be choice-induced preference change because he didn't pick the mm-hmm. leg lamp. It was picked for him. And the studies right. have showed that when things are picked for you, this effect does not manifest. But I, I, I think he's doing a different kind of thing, which is um, – the the leg lamp is a symbol of his intellectual prowess and victory, and thus the leg lamp is itself beautiful and good. Yes. Yeah. All right. And then, of course, there's the added wrinkle uh, that uh, his wife does not like the award and right. does not think it should be in the front of the house. Right. Um, Which he regards as a personal insult because yes. he has so deeply associated this lamp with his uh, with his personal intellectual abilities, mind <laughs> power. Uh, th- this all also made me think of another uh, great work um, that would be uh, Paradise Lost uh, by, by Milton. Uh, we have that line from Satan, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. That's re- yeah, that that's really good because I've never interpreted this line in that way as like a, a reflection of an ex post facto justification to reduce cognitive dissonance. But you could absolutely read it that way. You can totally see it like that. Uh, I mean, I, I've always interpreted it, I guess, as, um, you know, just a statement about like, you know, the power to like uh, Satan is asserting that he can make what he will of any situation. But yeah, you could t- interpret that much more in a cognitive bias way where he's saying like, well, you know, I, I made my decisions and my decisions led me to hell. And thus I will engage in choice, supportive, biased reasoning that makes me think actually, actually hell is good. It's good. You know, know, uh, and that reduces the cognitive dissonance within Satan's soul. (laughs) What if you just had a vision of hell where everybody's in that, where people, they're just all sitting around, you know, being tortured or torturing each other. And they're like, this place is great. This, this is, is great. Good. I don't, yeah. I don't even I wouldn't want, want to, to be to in heaven. heaven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a fantastic image to end with. Yeah. We end it by justifying the ways of God demand. So uh, it's right. generally what we seek to do in this, uh, this podcast. Wait, no, aren't we justifying the ways of Satan demand? I think that's what we did. Oh yeah. I guess that's more <laughs> what we're doing here. Yeah. <laughs> even better. Yeah. A lesser goal, a lower goal. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and close this one out. I think this will be a fun one for listeners to reflect on, especially since I think we actually had a stocking-based experiment there. Maybe you can reflect on on, on, on gift-giving and stockings and, and so forth uh, uh, with the, the holiday season that we're, we're passing through uh, at the moment. Uh, and certainly, everybody can relate on some level to uh, some of the, uh, the, the mental mechanics that we're discussing here in this episode. In the meantime, if you would like to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them wherever you get your podcasts and wherever that happens to be. Just rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us out. If you want to go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, that will take you over to the iHeart listing for this page. And there's a place you can click on there for our store if you wanted to get a shirt or a sticker or something with our logo or a monster on it. Uh, I believe by the time you listen to this, there should be a couple of different user-created designs that are pretty cool. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
Thank you.